All right. Good morning, everybody. Not, not bad. Um, just a few questions before I start. So to get a sense of who you are, who's from small startup, small tech startup space? Who's from big corporate? Whoa, <laughs> lots of those guys. Who's from like government slash other? Okay, who answered that space was what they thought about when they were six years old, outer space? Good, that's my nerd question. Hi guys. Um, cool, now I know who you are. I'm gonna talk a little bit about our team. Um, I am very honored to lead UNICEF's Venture Fund. It's a small team inside of a very, very big organization. And what I really wanted to talk about this morning uh, was how we kind of create an overlap between some big business opportunities and, and some really pressing problems. Uh, the, the UNICEF that I work in is not an organization that everybody knows. Uh, people think about it as a charity or something that works for children. But UNICEF is in fact a multi-billion dollar organization. It's a five and a half billion dollar a year organization that works on both delivering supplies and services to the most difficult to reach parts of the world and children who are most at risk, but also in setting policy with governments. Things like fair prices for vaccines. So we're the third, we're the, we purchased about 35% of the world's vaccines, which makes us able to set vaccine prices with big pharma. So there's sort of two sides of this organization, and it seems really big. Five and a half billion dollars a year is about 17 billion over three years, but this is the investment of China in just the continent of Africa over the same time. So if we think we're big as a United Nations organization that's uh, big and we've got fancy cars, uh, and we look at what countries are doing now in a new global landscape, uh, we have to be able to leverage the small amount of resources that we have to solve some really big problems. Um, I'm gonna talk, here's, here's some depressing stuff to start your, to start your morning. Uh, our team specifically focuses on areas that we think affect everybody. Uh, kids in New York, kids in Seattle, kids in Malawi. Um, these are areas that are new. These, these disasters weren't nearly as close to humanity 20 years ago as they are now. Things like urbanization. So by 2030, 75% of people will live in cities, which sounds great. You're more connected. You've got, uh, you've got Link, so you can call your friends. But if you're in a city, the disparities that you face if you're poor, if you're in the bottom quintile of wealth, the disparities you face are as great or greater as if you live in the countryside. So you have these dense areas of impacted poverty in urban areas, which are just going to get worse. In the world right now, there are 50, this is all the depressing stuff. The jokes come after. Well, I didn't even get a laugh. Uh, there are 50 million kids who are on the move right now because of violence. So that's an unimaginable number. Nobody can put that in their head. These are children who have been uh, out, kicked out of their homes because of war, because of conflict. And there's a visible face of it in Europe. You see the sort of Syrian refugees uh, coming through Europe. But in fact, the brunt of the refugee crisis is borne by countries in Central Africa and South Asia. Uh, and UNICEF, and as an organization, and many of your companies were built to work with sovereign states. So UNICEF has offices for countries, right, like the country office of Nigeria. Your corporations have people who deal with public policy, with governments. But if you're 50 million kids who are on the move because of war and violence, you have no sovereign state to look after you. There's no minister of health that I can go to and talk to about your health, and there's nobody that a corporation can go and get data from about you. So suddenly the world is different. There are also about 500 million, this is another number that's hard to get in your head, 500 million kids who are not going to get the right amount of food, either because there's too much water on their land or because there's not enough. So we've broken our planet, and I think that's obvious when you look at the seasonal changes that we see here, uh, but if you're one of those 500 million kids who will not get the right amount of food because of climate change, it's really, it's really very present and obvious to you. Finally, I told you this was depressing. Finally, 
we're not teaching anybody the right skills in schools. This is obvious in schools in New York and in schools in Burundi. The stuff that we're teaching kids does not prepare them for the world of automation that is coming, for a world without jobs. The stuff we're teaching may have been relevant in 1850 or 1900, but we're not, except in the very best schools in the world, teaching kids how to deal with this complex and changing world. And again, that's a problem here, and that's a problem everywhere in the world. Lastly, our world is more connected than ever before. And so if you watched what happened during the Ebola crisis or this recent outbreak of Zika, you saw a world that suddenly had to respond to global threats together. And we sort of did that, and we sort of put up walls, but, you know, whatever. Um, Suddenly, the speed that a disease can travel, the, the, the speed of an exogenous shock and the ability of it to infect and affect the entire world has increased dramatically. So those are the types of big problems that our team deals with. And we think that those are problems that are of interest both to corporations and to companies, as well as to governments, as well as being vitally important to children. Uh, so okay, that was all the depressing stuff. Here's some exciting stuff. There's no sovereign state for 50 million refugee kids, but there are more people on Facebook than there are in China. There are more people on 10 cents family of chat apps like WeChat than there are in India. And if you are a refugee who's traveling through Europe, if you're a Syrian 15-year-old, you have one number. As you go through five paper IDs, you have one number that connects you to your friends and family. It's not your phone number, because you change your SIM card in every country. It's your WhatsApp number from Syria. It's the number you signed up for in Aleppo before things went terribly wrong. So suddenly, there's an interlocutor. There's somebody we can work with that we can suddenly touch people and connect with them in a way that we couldn't before. But it means we need to really rethink how we do our work and also that our corporate partners need to rethink how they do theirs. And this isn't about philanthropy, it's about building a stronger and more balanced world. Because a world of inequity, a world of imbalance is dangerous to all of us. So I'll tell you a quick story about a platform we built called U-Report. Uh, this is, slide is kind of wrong, it's like 3.7 million, million active users today in about 30 countries. Uh, U-Report lets you send a text message to kids, lets you hear responses back in aggregate, and lets you use those responses to change policy. It allows us to send a text message out to 100,000 kids in Uganda, hear their responses, and aggregate that information and give it to government instantly. That's very exciting. It's exciting for us. It's exciting for corporate partners who might want to understand the pulse of a young generation. So, for example, in Liberia, there are about, this slide is really wrong, there are about 120,000 U-Reporters there, you can just Google, like, you report Liberia, and you'll see the numbers in real time. Um, I think they're about 120,000 now. In Liberia, we can send out a text message to 120,000 kids and ask them what they think about an issue. We can see that information come back in minutes. That means you're not doing surveys, you're not doing focus groups, you're not waiting 10 years, or five years, for census data to be validated and cleaned. And what does that allow us to do? A few months ago, so earlier last year, I guess, now almost a year ago, we started hearing in Liberia about issues in schools that there were teachers who were asking for sex from their students in return for final grades. That you could not get your final grades unless you had sex with your teacher. Now, sexual violence and, and violence in schools is a problem everywhere in the world. This is not a problem only in Liberia. And it happens in every community. But we had the, the request from the Minister of Education there. She said, can you get me information about this? If you can get me information, I'll be able to act in real time. So we sent out a question to 60,000 kids at that time, we said, is this a problem in your community? Is sex for grades an issue in your community? And within 10 minutes, we got back 13,000 responses. Of those, 11,000 said yes. What's that, like 84%, 86%? And all this information came in within minutes. Comes out on a screen, and 
you can say like, well, kids are liars. Kids are liars, by the way. Uh, that's the official UNICEF line. It. You can say people mess with data. You say people are trying to influence things for their own good. But when you have 11,000 data points that come in instantly, that's not something that you can argue with. And when you can see exactly where the problem is worst, you can actually do something about it. So here we were able to work with governments, with the government of Liberia specifically, to set up both policy and also police operations to address this issue. And it took weeks, two weeks total, to kind of go from hearing about something asking the question to having action on an operational and legislative level. That's the way that government should work. That's responsive and it's real and it's linked to action. What else do we see as things? So we were just hearing a little bit about data science. Uh, this is, here are two lines. The blue line is like old data. So that's censuses and the stuff that gets collected on paper. The red line is new data. It's all the creepy stuff that companies collect about us. So like Facebook knows when you're gonna break up two weeks before you break up. Because you're clicking on other people's photos, you know you are. You're sending little chats. Facebook knows. If you like 150 things on Facebook, it knows you better than your family does. That's unstructured data. That's why the shoes follow you around the internet from website to website to Facebook. You're like, go away, I already bought those shoes, stop following me. That's unstructured data, and it's growing quickly. Anybody in corporate knows about this. You probably all have hired huge numbers of data scientists. We have 10 PhD data scientists on our team in UNICEF. It's, this is the future. This is how decisions will be made. This is the past. That's a country. See the white lines, those big straight lines on the border? Those were drawn by old people in Europe hundreds of years ago. If you are, so Jack London taught me something very important when I was like 13. If you're stuck in nature, if you're lost in the forest and you see a straight line, you go for that because only humans make straight lines. There are no straight lines in nature. This is a false construct. This is Sierra Leone. If you look at the data that comes from cell towers, about how people move, not individual phone data, but the aggregate data that comes out of cell towers about people's mobility, you don't see this boundary. You see something a little different. This is what Sierra Leone looks like if you try to find out where communities are. What types of people interact with each other more and are more like each other than they're like other people? So people in, let's see, is there a thingy? Yeah, people in the purple here, they live here, they work here. There's a road that goes there. You can't see it on a map, but there is a road. Uh, this is a contiguous community. These people speak the same language. They are from the same ethnic group. They hang out together more. This map tells you something in real time that an old map doesn't. So here's an old map. This tells you like state boundaries. Those are wrong. Anybody who, whose family lives between two states or between two countries knows that those borders are really disruptive and, and not always real. These are like ethnic borders, whatever. That was put in a college textbook from 100 years ago. Also wrong. This is what data shows us about people. And the other interesting thing about people is that they move. People move quite quickly. So on a, on a Friday, people are here. On a Saturday, they go to market. Like, I'm in Brooklyn right now. I don't know how I got here. On a Sunday, they go back home. People move, and paper maps don't show that mobility. So if you want to target your services or your advertising to a certain group of people and you're not doing it in real time, you're doing it wrong, right? Wrong. If you are looking at the spread of a disease like Zika and you're trying to figure out where Zika is going, you could do a few things. You could look at case data from hospitals and you could figure out where the disease was, or you can start combining data that's coming from a lot of your companies, which is what UNICEF is doing. We're pulling in data from private sector partners like Amadeus and IBM, and Google and others, and combining them to understand the movement of people and the movement of diseases. So here's a map from the CDC, Center for Disease Control from February of this year and it shows you cases of Zika in the US. These are cases that came in from outside. And this is like a stamped report that came out. This is government, is, well, I don't know, do we trust government? Anyway, that's a government report that came out. 
these are pretty good statistics. They came out in February. Six months earlier, by combining data from our private sector partners, we were able to generate this map. It's a probability map, a risk map of where we thought Zika would go. We didn't publish it, it hasn't been vetted. Don't go back and tell anybody that we know everything about how mosquito-borne diseases travel, we don't. But this shows us the future. If you only have four health centers that you can put in the US, where are you gonna put them? If you only have four Zika experts, where are you gonna put them? Either you're making a random guess, or you're using data to help guide you. So, this is the type of work that we see as the future for both ourselves and for the partners that we work with. And it's not about philanthropy and it's not about charity. It's about building a world that's more connected and stronger. Uh, so we started a venture fund, it's small, it's $11.2 million. It allows us to make these tiny bets into companies uh, that we think will use technology like the, all of the machine learning that you can apply to data science and give us a better ability to deal with the future, which is very dark. The next 30 years do not look good. They're not a happy 30 years for humanity. Uh, and that's just the truth. But there are these big human needs, things that we see, like learning, which is broken everywhere, that technology can start to address. And we really believe that by binding together some of the biggest needs on the planet with the most creative people who are not in Silicon Valley, sorry, in Silicon Valley we're like, we're making a better app for finding a better table than our friend is at a better restaurant with fewer of our friends at it. The most creative people are in places with the biggest constraints. That's where good ideas come from and that's how good ideas get galvanized and turned into good product. So we're looking at things like drones and UAVs. Godfrey, are you here? There's Godfrey. Godfrey over there is the first drone pilot in Malawi. <laughs> uh, so Godfrey's awesome. This is, this is a, an airfield in Malawi where we were testing the first drone for delivering health supplies. We now, UNICEF has a new asset, which is a, a 6,500 square kilometer airspace in Malawi where we can test, test out drones and UAVs. That's amazing. All of our corporate partners want to be part of that. And it's more interesting than delivering pizza, although that's important too. Uh, this is, so, whoa, backwards. This is my great-grandmother's refugee card from Europe from 1948. So she was a refugee in Germany, and this is the card that the UN at the time, that agency, issued to her. And she couldn't uh, write her name, so she just put three crosses. The card today that a kid writes on or is written for in Europe looks exactly the same, and that is criminal. In 60 years, we're still using paper. There's no API. It doesn't connect to the internet. It gets lost. It gets dirty. I think this should be, I mean, this should be prosecuted. This is wrong, right? But we have technologies like blockchain, which underlies all the cryptocurrency that we're hearing about, that allow us to have persistent identity over time and space. And if anybody's been watching Bitcoin's valuation over the last three days, we also have ways to move money to people who we could never get money to before. So a system like M-Pesa in Kenya which allows you to send money by text message, has 99% name recognition across all of Kenya. That means an illiterate grandmother in Turkana in Kenya knows the name M-Pesa. She knows about this service because it lets her text money or receive money from her family. Anybody who's in private sector wants 99% name recognition. That's huge. And that was achieved because people made a service that, that was wanted by their customers. And finally, lastly, things like wearable technology, Fitbit, Great. If you're super connected, that's important and can help you understand your life. If you're disconnected, if you're a kid and you are in a country where there is extreme hunger, you are at risk of being stunted, of not being physically developed. And, and if you're not physically developed, your brain also doesn't cognitively develop. And this is a wearable device that UNICEF pioneered in the 70s with our partners that lets you understand a kid's nutritional status. 
If it's green, the kid is a fat little baby and healthy. If it's yellow, they're moderately malnourished. And if it's red, they're in severe malnutrition. That means they have a high risk of dying unless they're put on immediate nutritional supplements. This is fantastic. It lets a semi-literate person do a test that you would normally need a doctor to do, but it doesn't connect to the internet. There's no API. This is an investment we made in India. It's called Kushi Baby. It's a small NFC chip inside of a piece of glass that stores all of a patient's health records. All of the vaccination records, I want this. In New York the other day, I had to actually like walk paper records from one doctor to another. And that was stupid. I felt so dumb walking with like paper. This thing lets somebody with a basic Android phone, a health worker, access confidential records that they have access to through security uh, and, and all the stuff that you'd want to have secure on there and lets them see in real time what the patient has been through before, which lets them diagnose diseases and make better decisions more quickly. Oh, and I would say, so when we invested in that, it was like $13 per unit. Last year it was seven, this year it's two, and soon it will be free because the data that that's generating, the aggregate data that we can use off of it is more valuable than the thing itself. That came out of a bunch of students in India who we invested in and, and invested in their startup. And this is the ability for us. This is how we source, this is our pipeline. This is incredible. If anybody has like a VC fund or a fund that's looking at equity and you want to look at diverse investments, this is amazing. So we're able to get a blockchain company from South Africa, an open source hardware cell phone company from Nicaragua, and connect them and give them the technical support of our team. So I just wanted to share that sort of journey with you. Uh, we're at the beginning of it, and we're here very happy to, to hear from anybody in the audience. Our next round of investments is open now, so we're looking at these sort of frontier technologies and making investments in them. We're looking to our corporate partners to collaborate with us on providing access to data and data scientists, but also on sharing our pipeline and investing in things like Kushi Baby, which is going to be picked up for a second round by a big pharmaceutical company, sharing those investments and sharing that pathway to growth and scale for us. So thank you so much for joining us this morning and talk to you all on the internet.